You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, he is risen. Just want to make sure it works at home still. Good to see y'all this morning. Happy Easter, Northway Church. Happy Resurrection Sunday. For those maybe that are just joining us here uh, online with Northway for the very first time, my name is Jay Selman. I'm one of the pastors here at our church. So grateful you're with us this Easter morning. It's so encouraging to me right now to know that in this very moment, there are literally churches, Christians all over the world right now who are gathering online, even as we are, to celebrate together the greatest conquering victory that humanity has ever experienced, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Now, it's this victory that gives us incredible hope, even in the midst of incredible times of suffering like we're experiencing even right now in this pandemic of COVID-19. You know, this Sunday, I'd originally intended to go a certain direction for Easter, but then a couple of weeks ago when one of our pastors, Brady Goodwin, was teaching through our care value here at Northway, he dropped a line that just grabbed me for just a moment. He said, suffering won't have the final word. The resurrection does. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that promises our resurrection. And when he dropped that line, I knew exactly where we needed to go this Sunday. And so if you have a Bible accessible to you right now, I'd love for you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there in our New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, this is a passage we looked at uh, actually a couple years ago together, but I think it will serve us especially well again this Easter here, as we look at our resurrection hope in the midst of suffering and death. If you're unfamiliar with the book of 1 Thessalonians, a little background here in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul heading out, the Apostle Paul, heading out on his second missionary journey. And he's going from region to region, from city to city, town to town. And he's in northern Greece when he comes along the town of Thessalonica. And as Paul did in every city, he would go through, he would share the gospel, see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then Paul would help establish the church. And no sooner than this church got established, than the, the hostility of the community around them began persecuting this young baby church. And instantly, the persecution turned even physical to the point that the Apostle Paul was excommunicated out of Thessalonica, forbidden to come back. And Paul, later on, when he would write to the Thessalonians, he would say it was like a mother being ripped away from her child. And so as Paul was ripped away, he sat and waited, eventually made his way to Corinth, where he waited for word on how these Thessalonians were doing. And finally, when word came, Paul was incredibly encouraged because even in the midst of persecution and even out without Paul there to shepherd them, this, this young embryonic church was growing and maturing and holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he did find out there's a few concerns that this church had. And one of them, as we'll see here, is that an unexpected death of a loved one has occurred. And this death has shaken the faith of these baby Christians. And in fact, um, the confusion that they're wrestling with was concerning the correlation of their present sufferings and the salvation that was promised at Christ's return. In fact, when Paul was with them, he told these baby Christians that their ultimate salvation was going to come in Christ's return, and that's what they were joyfully waiting for, and that he believed that that return would come soon. 
But then persecution set in, suffering set in, and now somebody's died. And the question is, what happened to that person who's died? Have they missed out on the return of the Lord and the promise of that salvific hope that he offered? That's what we're going to see here, starting in verse 13. It's almost as if the camera is going to pan just a little bit, and we're taken now to kind of a virtual graveside service where the Apostle Paul is officiating this funeral of this loved one who's died. And what Paul has to say is not only eternally significant to the Thessalonians in that day, it is eternally significant to us even this day. And so we see, as Paul begins to talk now, about the ultimate hope that a Christian is guaranteed to have in the midst of suffering and death. Follow along with me here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Two things that I wanna show us here briefly this morning about the hope that a Christian can have in death that comes from this passage. First of all, Paul makes it abundantly clear that for the Christian, having a misunderstanding or an ignorance about the reality of what happens after death can lead to unnecessary hopelessness and despair, even in this life. You see this in verse 13. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You're gonna notice in the first three verses of this text, Paul will use the phrase fallen asleep. That is simply a euphemism. It's a metaphor that was used quite often in ancient Greek culture and then was adopted even into uh, the New Testament texts for death. It doesn't actually mean sleep. It's just a euphemism for death. And again, what Paul is speaking to is the grief that is accompanied in death. Grief, as we know, is universal in death. Anyone who's ever lost a loved one knows what that grief can be like. But Paul here is speaking to a particular kind of grief that is not accompanied with hope. That is an entirely different kind of grief when there is sadness that is not accompanied with hope. And typically what you're gonna see in Paul's letters here is that is a type of grief that is often associated with those who are outside of the Christian faith who are uncertain about what it is that will happen beyond the grave that leads to some immense despair. And in fact, it was common in ancient Greece, in the ancient Greek world, um, of this idea that there is no hope in death. There is a, 
a famous poet in the third century BC named Theocritus, who was quoted as saying, hopes are for the living. The dead have no hope. In other words, we have no idea what happens after the grave. So if there's any hope to be found, it's got to be in this life. So let's just live for this life and not worry about after the grave. And in fact, what we find in our culture, if you were to go out and survey folks on the street, if we were allowed to go out on the street, if you were to survey folks, you'd find a myriad of responses as to the question of what happens after you die. For some, it's the belief in soul sleep, this idea that we simply just go unconscious, waiting for a day of awakening. For others, it's, it's the idea of annihilation, that we simply cease to exist. We, we just disappear after we stop breathing. Others believe that we, we simply turn into angels. We grab our harps, we grab our halos, we grab our wings, and we float around like a precious moments figurine, simply shooting arrows at young couples. Others believe in the idea of reincarnation, that after we die, we simply come back in another life as something else. For some, it's a tree. For some, it's a cat. God help you. Uh, if it's going to happen, you know, I'd like it to be Brad Pitt, or maybe I come back as Henry Cavill, whatever. I don't know. But reincarnation is a popular view amongst many folks. There's others that simply think we just turn into energy. We become like a Star Wars force ghost or something. What, whatever it is, you need to know that packaged within each of those responses, this is a very big deal. Because the answer to the question of what happens to you after you die plays a significant role in how hope is going to play out in your life while you're alive. And when you don't have clarity over what happens after the grave, it can have a weight on your soul like none other. Many of you know what it's like to lose a loved one and have experienced a type of grief that did not have hope with it. It's incredibly weighty. But that's why Paul says, for the Christian, I don't want you to be uninformed. For the Christian, you don't have to be left with speculation. You know why? Because we have been given revelation, which is what Paul speaks to. Secondly, starting in verse 14, He's not only going to talk, as we just saw, about the ignorance and misunderstanding and how that plays into hopelessness and despair. The converse of that is that a biblical awareness, an actual understanding about life after death for those who are in Christ can bring the full assurance of hope, even in the midst of grief and death. So again, you see this in verse 14. Paul says, for since we believe, that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see what Paul just did here? He roots our hope as Christians in death in our united bond with Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason that a Christian can have hope even in dying is because we happen to know somebody who went into the grave and came out. And that is Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in us, our hope is in him. If indeed you are in Christ. And in fact, that's a, a very famous Pauline phrase used there in verse 14 of in Jesus or translated in the ESV through Jesus. Paul uses this in multiple places in his letters. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God first created humanity, he created us to enjoy an everlasting communion with him, that our bodies, our life here on earth, would, we would live forever in perfect relationship with God. But as you may know the story, man chose to rebel against God, 
to try to become our own God and usurp his authority. And in that very moment, sin entered into the world. And God's judgment against sin was death, both a physical death and an eternal death, a physical death. And for this moment forward, the curse of sin on planet Earth didn't allow for our bodies to continue living forever. Our bodies begin aging and dying because of sin. And there's also a eternal separation that we can no longer, as sinful humanity, live in the presence of a holy God. And so we've been cast off from his presence forever. You need to understand, when it comes to sin, there is no flattening the curve. Death is 100% coming for all of us. And there is not any of us who in our own effort, our own religious work can stop death from coming. There is no flattening the curve. But here's the good news. In, in the good news of Jesus Christ, God's grace and his mercy and his love collide together when God decided to do something about it. God and God alone had a way out. God would send his perfect son, Jesus Christ, perfectly blameless, holy, without sin, to come trade in our death and experience through his substitutionary sacrifice to take the justice of God for sin on himself and off of us. And that by placing our faith in him, we then inherit or are given his righteousness, his forgiveness. This is God's grace at work. And so now it's no longer our trust, our hope, being rooted in lesser things, such as religious works or in our own identities and our, our own will. It's our trust now rooted, transferred and rooted to Jesus Christ so that we are found in him. That's what we're ultimately symbolizing, even in baptisms. This idea that we're no longer in us, we're in Christ now. We, we've identified ourselves with his death and his burial to sin, and we've also been identified with his resurrection. In other words, what is true of Jesus now becomes true of us. The good news is, if you are in Christ Jesus, then not even death can break that union. No suffering can break that union. Just as Jesus died and rose from the grave, so too will all those who are in him rise as well at his second coming. In verse 15 and following, it goes even further to show the prominence of how the dead in Christ, those who've already died with faith in Jesus, just like the one in Thessalonica did, that they will actually take priority in their resurrection at the return of Christ over those who are actually still alive when Christ returns. Look at this in verse 15. Paul tells them, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is significant language in the Greek. That phrase, the coming of the Lord, it's actually just one word in the original language. It's the word parousia. And it's a word that every Roman citizen would have known exactly what that word means. Because when applied to an official dignitary that would visit a local city, that word translated from Greek into Latin and then English is, is the word that we get for advent or arrival. What would happen is, is when a, an official dignitary of Rome would come visit a city, when they would leave Rome and travel to another city, even such as Thessalonica, whether it's an emperor or a senator or a military general, whenever they approached the city, 
the first thing that would happen is trumpets would sound. Music would play, fanfare would hit the streets, welcoming and announcing the arrival of this dignitary. And then the second thing that would happen is some of the noble citizens from that city, they would actually come out of the gates first and they would go meet that dignitary on the road to welcome them in. And then they would be joined by the rest of the citizens in that community who would then come and welcome them in as well. This is the exact language that every Roman knew Paul is borrowing from in verses 16 and 17 now to apply to what will happen when Christ returns as our official dignitary who's come to rescue and redeem. Notice this in verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, this is fascinating. Paul tells us the first privileged citizens who will get to experience the resurrection when Christ returns will actually be those who've already died in Christ. He's using that dignitary language. The first noble citizens that will come out of the gates to meet Christ in the air will be those who've already died with faith in Christ. And then we will be joined, those dead in Christ will be joined by all the Christians who are alive on earth at the time of Christ's return. And they will be joined together, literally caught up together. That word caught up, translated in Latin and then in English, we get the word rapture. It simply means to be taken by force, to be joined up together with. And in that moment, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we'll receive brand new bodies. The corruptible will be replaced with the incorruptible. The perishable will be replaced with the imperishable. So in terms of the Thessalonians being concerned that their Christians, their loved ones who have already died before Christ's return, that somehow they've missed out on this royal party that's coming, Paul says not only have they not missed out, they're gonna be first in line in the procession. This is wonderful news of hope for the Christian who is suffering or who has died because we know this life is not the end. The grave is not the end. It will not have the final word, which is why Paul says in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So can I just do a little bit of encouraging here as we close out our time together this Easter? Let me do some encouraging here so that we're not uninformed as followers of Christ. First of all, as tragic and as grief-stricken as the reality of death can be for every one of us in life, and it is, death was never supposed to happen. It should be shocking. It should be painful. It was never supposed to be. And as tragic as it is, we can have hope that our God is good and that our God is in sovereign control of even the very timing of the day of our death. Put in biblical terms, no one dies early. Now, trust me, I get it. We, we in human form, we believe we die early. I mean, whether somebody, a loved one dies today or five years later, it'll always be too early. Some of y'all know what it's like to lose a loved one and how painful it is. 
Uh, I myself, my wife and I between us, we have lost three parents within a year of each other, all very young ages, and, and who, who now we have grandkids that, that never got to experience the rest of the relationship with us. We know what it's like to feel that somebody's been plucked from this earth too early. That's the human experience. But from God's perspective, biblically and theologically speaking, no one dies early. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, 16, God has preordained the exact number of our days before we were even born. Hebrews 9, 27 says the very date of our death is appointed by God. Job 14, 5 says not only has God determined our days, but no man could exceed the limits that God has laid out. Job 12, 10, God holds the very breath of every human being in his hands. How encouraging is that news to know that God is good and God is sovereign, especially in times like we're in today, when death and the fear of death is all around us, that God has got this. And so, yes, death in all its ways, it's awful, it's painful, and it's a reminder of the reality of sin and God's curse on sin, and it comes with painful grief, but we can trust that God is good and he's in sovereign control of that day. The word oops is not in God's vocabulary. God will not drop the ball on his sons and daughters. But secondly, not only can we have hope in our death, we can have hope in knowing that God is sovereign even over what happens after our death. And so here's what I want you to see. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, here's what the scriptures tell us about what happens the moment you die. At the moment you die, your spirit will separate from your body and will be with the Lord in his presence. You need to understand you are not a body. You are a soul. You have a body, but you are not a body. You are a soul that is intended to live eternally, either with God in his presence or in hell, isolated from God for all eternity. But you are a soul. For the Christian, Paul gives encouragement. 2 Corinthians 5.8 Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're not in your body and you're a Christian, that means you're with Jesus. And you remember when Christ was on the cross just a couple of days ago at Good Friday as we thought through this, as Christ was on the cross surrounded by these two criminals and one of them asked, will you remember me when you get to your kingdom? Do you remember what Christ said in Luke chapter 23, verse 43? He said today, not tomorrow, not a hundred years from now, Today, you will be with me in paradise. That right there ruled out soul sleep. It rules out purgatory. There is no mediatory state where you have to be purged of your sin in a fiery torment for an indefinite period of time until you're released. That idea is nowhere in the true biblical canon of scripture. No, instead, we will be with the Lord at the moment of our death. There we will be with him until his appointed return, which at that point, as we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and as well as 1 Thessalonians 4, that at that point, we who are with Christ will return with him and our bodies will be resurrected first. And then we will be joined by all those who are alive on earth and we'll be caught up together. And in the twinkling of an eye, we'll receive new bodies, amen? Because I don't wanna be in this thing for the rest of eternity. We're gonna get new bodies, and I don't know whether you're buried or cremated when that day comes, but I believe God is sovereign enough to pull all the particles back together and then transform your body in the twinkling of an eye. And then 
as John has promised in Revelation 22.5, there we shall be with the Lord and reign with him forever. All because of why? Verse 14 in this text, that Jesus has already triumphed the grave for us through his death and resurrection. What's true of him is true of us. Y'all, this, by the way, is why Easter is such a big deal for us. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, this is of first importance, the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question I have for us today is, do you have the same assurance when it comes to your life after death? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his works for you, not your works for him? Are you trusting in his death on the cross, his shed blood that has substituted for you and has clothed you in his righteousness and forgiven your sin, and adopted you as sons and daughters? Are you trusting in his conquering resurrection that he's overcome sin, Satan, and death for you so that you can be secured in the newness of life for all eternity? Only in the person and work of Jesus Christ can you have 100% assurance of being with Jesus after the grave. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, he invites you to do so now. You need to know all of Dallas, Texas, all of the earth right now is looking for resurrection. Everybody's looking for new life somewhere, but only in Jesus Christ is that resurrected life guaranteed beyond the grave. For those of you who maybe this struck a chord with you, can I just encourage you? We're going to do something a bit different in the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to finish up our value series looking at the value of community, which is so timely for right now. But the week after that, we're scheduled to start the book of Romans. I'm going to pause that for just a few weeks. We're going to do it. We're going to come back to it. Actually, our hope is that we can begin Romans when we actually come back together in person. We'll see how long that goes and if we can hold out. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually pause that for a little bit so I can take a few weeks to speak through something I've enjoyed doing and teaching the church for a while now, and that is walking through a theology of suffering so that we can really understand what the scriptures say on the matter of the Christian and suffering in this life. And we're going to look at a few issues. One, God's purpose and trials. Like what is the role of evil and suffering and where is God in it? We're going to look at our response to trials what God is actually seeking to do in these trials and our response in it. We're going to look at our hope in trials, and we're going to look at our security in trials. I invite you to join us here at Northway in the coming weeks as we find some much-needed anchoring of hope in the midst of the sufferings we're all walking through. In the meantime, church, be encouraged this Easter that suffering does not have the final say. The resurrection does. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what promises ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you have not left us without hope. Thank you that you've given the promise of Christ's triumph and victory over the grave that can be ours too. And for anyone who is watching this right now is yet to turn to you, in true faith and trust, oh God, might you draw their faith in. Might you convict them of their sin by your grace, allow them to repent of it, and instead take their trust that was formerly rooted in themselves 
and transfer that trust by faith to your son, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, be assured of the forgiveness, the security, the adoption, and the new life that is theirs. And God, in the meantime, keep us looking forward to that future day when your son shall return, that trumpet shall sound, and we who are dead shall rise first and joined by those who are alive, and there we shall be with you forevermore. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.